Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today we're coming to you from Denver, Colorado, where we've been involved with a number of different professional theological society meetings, Evangelical Theological Society, Society of Biblical Literature. So many societies get together every now and then, and this year it's in, in Denver. And I'm privileged to have as my guest today one of the people who's made a presentation here, Dr. Kelly M. Kapik. Welcome, Kelly, to the Beeson Podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I think I first met you, if my memory serves me well, when you were a student. I won't say just a student, because you, <laughs> you were already pretty far along in your thinking about theology, but you were at Reformed Theological Seminary. That's amazing. You remember that. Yes. That's true. We I had a wonderful it. conversation over lunch. and we Over talked. a Cuban sandwich. That's right. <laughs> you have a better <laughs> memory than I. And so I've known you for quite a while, yeah. and from um, RTS, you went on to study, did a PhD at King's College London. Yep. Did you work with Colin Dutton? Co- yeah, Colin was one of my supervisors. He and Susan Hardman Moore. Oh, yeah, yeah. So. Well, Colin Dutton just one of the great names, I mm-hmm. think, in theology of the recent generation. So, And now you have been for some years at Covenant College, yep. Lookout Mountain, uh, Georgia. Yep, since 2001. I, yeah, I was going to say Tennessee because it's right <laughs> on the border. Two miles, two or three miles away. And yeah. my hometown is Chattanooga, which you yeah. can almost see from the uh, yep. campus of Covenant College. A beautiful, beautiful campus, a wonderful school, mm-hmm. founded in the Christian tradition, uh, faithful to the gospel. Uh, and so uh, we're honored that you'd take time away and speak with us. And I want to talk about a number of different writings uh, you're a prolific writer, and your writings uh, tug our heart and challenge our mind all at the same time. But let's begin with how you became a Christian. Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, I'm originally from California. I actually, some of your listeners will know Creedence Clearwater Revival. I was born and raised in Lodi, stuck in Lodi is one of their great songs. But yeah, I was born into the Catholic Church, baptized as a child. But at some point in elementary school, basically my brothers and my mother and I stopped going. My father's been faithful, still is to this day. So by the time uh, elementary school was over, I was really unchurched. And my middle school years, strangely enough, were like people's college years in terms of Mm. stuff I was doing. And long story short, I, I started going to a Baptist youth group my freshman year in high school, public high school. And I went because some of the kids I partied with went there. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, I was getting in some trouble. I thought, well, if I go to this church, people will get off my back. <laughs> and sure enough, though, it, it, God was speaking to me and uh, yeah. used that group. And about six months later, converted. And um, so I was in the Baptist church. Some years later, by the end of high school, I was introduced to Reformed theology so, through some, some people started reading and went to went to Wheaton, got involved in a Presbyterian church. Um, so... It's kind of a, an eclectic background. So you've been a Catholic, a Baptist, and now you're a Presbyterian. That's right, yep. Dare I ask what's next? <laughs> well, and when we lived in England, uh, part of the time we were in an Anglican church. Oh, but there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've mentioned your awakening to Reformed theology. Mm. So when did you start thinking about theology and even want to think about pursuing it as something you'd give your life to studying? Yeah, so I, the, the youth minister who... I was converted under, ended up leaving that church, going somewhere else, and 
he had his own, he was a Biola grad and it was a youth minister. And on a plane trip, he somehow he got introduced to J.I. Packer's writings. Mm. So and because we had a friendship, he started feeding me material, even though he didn't live in the same area. And then I was introduced to R.C. Sprawl stuff. And I, you know, I, I was good friends with people. So I would mooch lunch off of them and save my (laughs) lunch money and buy R.C. Sprawl tape. So it's pretty embarrassing (laughs) really, to be honest with you. But, uh, so by the end of high school, I really had a sense of I really wanted to do theology, and I really wanted to do it at a high level and uh, serve the church and the yeah. academy. So Great. Well, I want to talk about a couple of your books, and the one we begin with is right on the topic we're talking about now, A Little Book for New Theologians, mm. Why and How to Study Theology. It's a little book, 120 pages or so, a small book, and yet it's a book about a very deep and important topic. Uh, you say you wrote this for young theologians, right. uh, and it's modeled in a way on a book by Helmut Tilika, mm. an exercise for yeah young theologians. Young theologians. Yeah. So Helmut Tilika was a great theologian himself and a pastor right. as well. But to say a little bit about this book, what you're trying to do, and how you got into it. Yeah, so uh, Tilika's book is a classic. It really helped me early on in my journey. And since 2001, I've taught at Covenant College as a Christian liberal arts college. And one of the reasons I love being at a liberal arts college is because my students are studying everything. They're studying biology and history and philosophy and psychology. But everyone there takes an Old Testament class, New Testament, and then a year of theology. And I, one of my privileges is to try and convince them all that theology is for all of them and that they're all theologians. And you know, at risk of sounding cheesy, the question isn't, are you a theologian, but are you a good one? Yeah. And so uh, they're my primary audience as I was wrestling through these things, trying to help them think of theology in a more holistic way. Um, but I also had a growing dissatisfaction of the way I saw a lot of theological texts being written, where there was such a strong divide between theology and pastoral concerns, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to fuse those back together. Yeah, often theology is seen as abstract, abstruse, um, mm-hmm. something that's for heady, nerdy intellectual yep. types, and and you really want to say theology is a practice of the people of God. Mm. Uh, I love that definition of William Ames. Theology is living in the presence exactly. of God. Exactly, yeah. And so it, we have a chapter in this little book called Humility and Repentance. Yeah. Uh, why is that appropriate to a book on theology and theologians? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I myself am a Reformed theologian, and one of the sad ironies is that if you follow Reformed theology through, it should be cultivating the most humble people possible because of this confession of we're just so reliant on God and his grace and sovereignty and all of that. And yet, sadly, ironically, we are often known as some of the most arrogant people. Mm. And I just, you can't actually learn theology. You can't learn anything apart from humility. You have to be open to growing, to input, uh, to feedback. I just think about even John the Baptist and Jesus out of the gates repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what's going on there is not simply refine some of your behaviors, but you're going to have to revise how you think about God and his ways in the world. Yeah. And that, that requires humility. You say you're a Reformed theologian. Well, all good Reformed theologians are Augustinians. Yeah, yeah. We read Augustine. Calvin quoted him more than any anyone except yeah. the Bible. And so one of the main motifs in Augustine's, not only his confessions, but his whole theology, is being on via, on pilgrimage, yes. on the road. 
Uh, and that's a motif that you pick up as well, yeah. pilgrimage. Say a little bit about that. I love the imagery of pilgrimage. You know, it's it's definitely Augustinian. It's definitely in the Psalms, right? This this Psalms of Ascent and other things. I love it because theology is not about learning the answers, right? It is it is about walking this road with the people of God on our way to glory. And sometimes we take wrong turns. Sometimes we turn and there's a beautiful vista and we see things we didn't expect and it's fantastic. Sometimes we really need to ask directions. Sometimes we need to slow down. And and I just think that imagery is so much better than static imagery Mm. of just learn these answers. So when I have students, my goal for them is not, I mean, we're definitely dealing with content. But I need them to learn to think theologically rather than just learn a bunch of answers. So if, if you have an interest, a hankering for theology, or if you know particularly a young person, this is a book you could put in their hands and would really help them because you're, you're not overly laborious. It's a brief book, but a book right to the point of what is at the heart of theology and how one cultivates the discipline of theology in terms of the life of faith. And so I recommend it strongly. Uh, but you've written so many other things. I want to talk about a couple of your other books. Um, first of all, before we do that, how do you work? How do you write? Mm, that's a good question. I'm actually a very slow writer, uh, and I just find I've got to push forward slowly, and it's really about a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. So it surprises people, but if I have a day where I write 500 words, I think it's a fantastic day. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, summers have been important to me. And trying to just plug away a little bit as we're going um, through the year has been important. The school has also provided some sabbaticals, which have been helpful. But for me, it's just kind of the I, things are on my mind, and I'm slowly trying to push them aside or push them forward. And I guess the last thing I would say is I do always work on multiple things at the same time. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I'm working on something for eight years. Right. And so there's always just different levels of things you're working on. Do you on. write at a computer or how do you do that? Yeah, that's interesting. I do. I write I, I write at a desk. Um, and you compose I, at the desk. Yeah. But I find often when I'm stuck, I actually have to get out just scraps of paper and a pencil or pen. So you are a human being. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I can't I can't actually know where I'm going to go typing. I have to visually yeah. do it with paper and pen yeah, for well, sure. That's interesting. Let, let's talk about your uh, book on the Trinity, one of your books on the Trinity. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about this book, a little book for new theologians. How do you introduce something so massive yeah. as a theme, so encompassing of all reality mm. as the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. We've well, written a book, The God Who Gives, and it's a book about the Trinity, but the subtitle says a lot, How the Trinity Shades the Christian Story, Shapes the Christian Story. Part, part of what I'm interested in is we become so familiar with something, we stop seeing it. And so sometimes it's not that you're saying something new, you're saying something old in a new way so people can see it again. So we talk about grace all the time, and we lose its understanding. And part of what's happened in some recent scholarship is to say, actually, exploring the idea of gift, which is grammatically, you know, linguistically, you can go back, gift and grace are basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that can really help us understand something. So... The basic plot line is this. God gives us everything when he creates out of the overflow of his love. But he does say, I'm giving you everything, but not this. Mm. Not because he's bad, but because he knows he made us. So he knows we can't handle this thing. And the 
the fall is basically humanity taking the one thing God didn't give. And then the fundamental question is, how will God get it all back? Will he come and grab and destroy? And the surprise of the gospel is God gets it all back by giving even more. He gives himself through the gifts of his son and his spirit. And so I'm trying to frame it in terms of actually the gift of the son and the gift of the spirit are God's answer to the crisis of the fall. But it's still in terms of the creator God who gives. The triune God creates and the triune God redeems. And he does it out of this overflow of his divine ge- generosity. That's a wonderful image. And that's one of the images. Why is the Trinity so hard for so many people? I think partly because we tend to think about it in terms of just abstract philosophical categories. But sometimes even people will say, well, I don't know. They know they're supposed to believe in the Trinity, but they're like, where is that in the Bible? Right? Those are actually really good questions. And the truth is, I think the Bible is profoundly Trinitarian, but we should look at how the Bible reveals God as triune. And it's often revealed through the people of God experiencing God. Right? B.B. Uh, Warfield has this wonderful, very profound statement where he says, the Trinity is revealed after the Old Testament and before the New Testament. Hmm. And I just, it's so great because people are like, where, where, in what, what writing is that in? <clears throat> and his whole point is the Trinity is revealed with the coming of the Son and the Spirit. And the New Testament is reflecting on that. But the reality of the Son and the Spirit is the reality of the Trinity God. And so the people of God then experience this and then have to articulate and express it. And I think most people become Christians and Trinitarian not because they've actually thought about it, but because they've experienced the love of the Father through the grace of the Son, right, and the power of the Spirit. You see that in baptism? You see that in the doxology, the worship of God's people? So there's a strange dynamic where in some sense I feel like, oh, guys, I wish we were more Trinitarian. And then I have to tell people, and yet we're more Trinitarian than you know. Yeah. You know. You know, I like this definition of the Trinity. How do you define the Trinity? Well, theologians have tried. And one of those, I think, that comes pretty close is Jürgen Moltmann. Mm. Now, I don't always agree with Moltmann on, on a number of issues, but I, he, he hits the nail, I think, when he says, the doctrine of the Trinity is nothing less than the story of Jesus as the story of God. Mm. And if you take that really seriously, that opens up into the very thing you're talking yes, about, the triune right. reality of the God who is inexhaustible in his generosity and in his love. Yep. No, that's right. It, and and we have to, I think the Old Testament is Trinitarian, but you only see that in light of the Son and Spirit. And then we go back, as Warfield says there, you've been knocking stuff in a dark room, you turn on the lights now, and now you see it. Yeah. You know? But it's in light of the sun. It's a great book, uh, The God Who Gives, How the Trinity Shapes the Christian Story. Let's talk about one more book that you've written. Uh, and, and just for our podcast listeners, we're choosing three. We, you probably have done, what, 20? 13? No, no, no. I've done, <laughs> I think, 10 or 12. Okay. Like well, you're on your way. You're yeah. a very young theologian, yeah. if I may say so. Uh, this is a book that really came out of your own experience of angst, of struggle, mm. of darkness. Mm. It's a book entitled Embodied Hope, A Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering. What mm. led you to write this book? The short story is in 2008, my um, my wife, uh, and we just celebrated our 25th anniversary, which mm. is great, but my wife um, was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, so we went through that, through various surgeries, and around 2009, she was declared cancer-free, which was 
incredible. And we kind of thought, God, that was really hard, but thank you, you've been faithful, you know. But then 2010, she was president of Medair, U.S. Medair, which is an international relief and rehabilitation organization. It's based in Switzerland. She was involved with the U.S. And there had just been this Haiti earthquake, and she was involved uh, helping teams, um, logistics and stuff. And she had just had a meeting with some pastors about public possibly doing church planning in Haiti. You know, this is God's work, right? So so she should be safe. <clears throat> and she, after that meeting, she called me from the side of the road <clears throat> and said, uh, I'm not sure I can make it home. And she was driving our stick shift. She said, my, my leg's not working right. I'm not sure what's going on. Well, that was in 2010. And to make a long story short, that began very serious chronic pain. She has... Um, it, which ended up taking us six years later all the way through Mayo Clinic. And she has a very rare thing called urethromalgia or man-on-fire disease and then a, a mm. tissue disorder. So every single day my wife deals with very serious pain and fatigue. There's never, there's never a day without that. So, so eventually, wrestling through that with her encouragement, um, she wanted me to be more public and wrestle through some of this because of how could help me and help, help others. And out of nowhere, I received a Templeton grant um, to spend six months uh, starting that. So that's, that's kind of the background. What are you trying to say in this book? Yeah, the basic thing I'm trying to say is kind of, it's about, our bo- it's about the body. And the first part of the book is saying our, our physical bodies really matter. Mm. And it is legitimate to lament. So lament is an important part. Mm-hmm. taking our body as Protestants we don't have a very good doc- theology of the body so I, I try and talk about that and then the middle of the book is the body of Jesus mm-hmm. and the importance of the incarnation and his death and resurrection and trying to really meditate the, the whole book has to be centered on Christ but as Protestants we're often very good about talking about Jesus died for your sins but we're not good about he really entered, entered into solidarity with us mm-hmm. and he knew suffering and then the the final third of the book is the body of Christ. Basically, one of the things we've really learned is suffering is a team sport in the church. And, and I've really come to think faith is. And we're, I've seen the, the real negative effects of our rugged individualism trying to do this on our own, even just in terms of having faith with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I think we believe for each other when things are hard. And anyways. Now, you all have children. Yep. So how's that been a factor in this? Yeah, it's been big. We were married nine years before we had children. So when she was diagnosed with cancer, I think there were three and five. And now they're, they're older teenagers. Um, but this has become their story. Their mom was a hiker and would always take them around. And she became the reader of all the stories to them. Hmm. But, um, yeah, my kids have had to really grow up and they chip in and do a lot. So they're amazing. But it's definitely part of their story. I love the way you bring together... It's just as you said, Christology with ecclesiology mm. in terms of this experience of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the Catholic tradition has a way of talking about this that actually makes me uncomfortable mm. to talk about the church as the extension of the incarnation. Mm. And there may be a certain sense in which that has some truth. It also has some dangers right? because there is a uniqueness about the incarnation yeah. that isn't duplicated, replicated, ipso facto in the church. And yet there is an intrinsic, inviolable connection between the God who became flesh, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14, and the life of the body of Christ, the people of God. And that seems to be at the heart of what you want to say in this Yeah, I mean, because I share your concerns uh, about that. 
And yet we both would say, I'm sure, it's interesting, how, how does God give hugs now? <laughs> right? It takes real, his people to give, you know, yeah. wrap real arms around people and to bring warmth and care. It's this funny thing, God doesn't need us, and that's actually really important, but he delights to use us. And when you can hold both of those things together, you can be liberated from guilt and then freed to actually love people, right? Rather than doing it out of some strange thing. And But the people of God, we really desperately need each other. Yeah. I believe that. You know, this is a book I think that a person can take and read and really be helped by. Mm. It's deep. It's theological. Mm. It's personal. Mm. Existential. Mm. Uh, and yet, it's also theological. In fact, you bring together two things. You say Christians in the throes of suffering must develop pastoral sensitivity and theological instincts. Mm. Talk about that. Yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of what drives who I am and how I think of theology and my writings in general. But here is a way to talk about it because I think what happens is we have people who really love theology, often in my tradition, love theology, but to be honest, not very nice, or they just don't have very great emotional intelligence, and, and we can hurt people. And then you have others who are really great pastorally, can enter into pain with others, but are pretty soft and loose with orthodoxy. Mm. And I, I just don't think those should be at odds, right? Mm. Real orthodoxy is compassionate, right? Real theology is pastoral. And I'm trying to say, let's get good theology and good pastoral practice. Let's stop choosing between those. And we have whole traditions that choose between those, or even, as you know, institutions that say, we're this or we're that. And I think the scriptures and the gospel and the church say, no, 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 we're, we need both, <laughs> right? Orthodox pastoral care. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Kelly Ibkapik. He is Professor of Theological Studies at Covenant College, Lookout Mountain, Georgia, a wonderful theologian, a prolific writer. We've been talking about three of his books, A Little Book for New Theologians, The God Who Gives, that's about the Trinity, and then Embodied Hope, A Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering. I recommend them all highly. Thank you, Kelly, for this conversation. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.